I guess it's appropriate that we're going to talk about prayer on the night in which the Cubs and the Indians are playing. I don't know who's going to win, but I know there's a lot of people praying. And um, maybe they'll pray differently after we hear what Jesus has to say here tonight. I don't know. Um, but I, I think one of the things that I want us to, to see when we come to th this chapter and this parable of the friend at midnight is that sometimes teachers, good teachers, teach you things in very counterintuitive ways. Sometimes you have to learn things in ways that are not what you would expect. For example, I went to college at a place called Berkeley College of Music. And Berkeley is known as a jazz school. And I studied diligently and tried to learn which scales you're supposed to play over which chords. And they kind of flew by, and it seemed impossible. And then I got out of college, and I... Uh, had a little more money than when I was in college, and I started to buy a lot of jazz CDs. And I started to listen to them. And all of a sudden, I found that the real way to learn how to play jazz is not by figuring out what different scale to play every bar as the music goes flying by, but it's really to listen, to immerse yourself in that music, get those sounds in your head, and then figure out how to find them on your fingers. It's very counterintuitive, but it's true. Now, maybe you guys are studying jazz here in school or trying to learn how to play music, and there really is something about they can't quite teach you the way actual jazz players play. Similarly, if you're studying more classical music, right? You know most music theory is derived, at least initially, from figuring out how did Bach do what he did, right? Even though Bach breaks the quote-unquote rules all the time, um, he didn't follow the rules. That didn't how he did what he did, right? There's some things that seem pretty counterintuitive, and prayer is one of those things. There, there are a couple of places in the Gospels where Jesus' disciples come to him and ask him to teach them to pray. And Jesus' answer is always a bit counterintuitive. He gives them almost no teaching about technique. Do this, do that. Instead, he focuses somewhere else. And that's what we're going to look at tonight, at this parable and at this Sermon on the Prayer, on Sermon on the Plains, um, and see what does Jesus have to teach us about really what is the key to biblical prayer. Is that fan thing still on back there? You might want to turn that off, unless you guys are dying of heat. Are you dying of heat? Okay, never mind then. If you, can you hear me, Chris, Lucas, you guys can hear me okay? All right, then we'll be okay. So let's look at Luke chapter 11. Verse 1, now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within his house, Do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. 
I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Let's pray that Jesus would help us understand this scripture. Lord, we do thank you that here you teach us important things about prayer. And we pray that you would help us even now to understand what you have for us here. That we would not just learn something, but that we could be different. That we could be people who pray as you will teach us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, when Jesus is asked to teach them to pray, he doesn't really give them very much technique. Oh, I know he gives a particular prayer, but I think most Christian traditions have understood that not to just be rote words that you would repeat over and over again, but a model, a framework for prayer. Um, the, the reason that we know that is Jesus actually condemns the kind of prayer where you just go through the motions and use lots of words without really considering what they mean. So Jesus doesn't then turn around and teach us words. I'm not saying it's a bad idea to pray these actual words, but I think as we get into this tonight, you're going to understand why he structured this kind of model prayer the way he does. But he actually spends more time on this little parable and on the explanation of the parable. Really, verses 5 through 13 are really key to understanding the heart of what Jesus wants his people to understand about prayer. Now, maybe you're somebody who's trying to figure out what Christians are about, what Christianity is about. This is actually a pretty helpful passage for you to understand because prayer is something that Christians talk about. It's something that most Christians know that they should do, but it's something that most Christians feel like they struggle with and they don't do as much or as often as they should. And I think a lot of people have some kind of misunderstandings about what prayer is. What is the heart of what Jesus is teaching here? And here's the thing. Everybody agrees that this parable is designed to encourage us to pray. But there's some different opinions about how Jesus is motivating us. I actually had uh, one of my children about a week or two ago came upon uh, or ended up with a copy, I won't tell you how, of that book, This Present Darkness. Y'all remember that? That was kind of before your time. It came out when I first moved to Nashville. And I remember, you know, Frank Peretti, who wrote that book, um, he came to Nashville to a church here, and he gave a little talk about why he wrote this book. It was a hugely popular book. And um, if you don't know the book, it's, it's kind of it's somewhat fictional kind of book, I hope, about 
kind of the powers of evil and the powers of good and the struggle. And, and what Peretti said, his design in this book was to get Christians to pray more. That was his goal. And so he sort of proposed this world where basically like the angels and the demons were battling it out and they were evenly matched. And the only way that the angels could get power over the demons was if Christians prayed. So it was a, a book really designed to motivate people to pray. But I would say maybe not really with a biblical motivation. Because the Bible certainly teaches that Jesus is Lord over all things. He's not up there fretting over how our world events are going to turn out. And if Christians don't pray, then everything's just going to fall apart. No. There is a throne in heaven and it's occupied. So it was a, a well-meaning attempt, I suppose. But it missed the actual biblical motivation for prayer. Similarly, a lot of people read this parable and what they get from it is, you just got to keep bugging God. Don't let up. And eventually, even though you're annoying the crud out of him, he'll do what you want. Now, there are more sophisticated ways, I guess, of explaining that. But that's how a lot of people read this parable. And I don't think that's actually what Jesus is talking about. Is this parable teaching that we just need to bug God even after he says no? In other words, look at verse 7. Is God the person who's in the bed and needs to be woken up? You need to, need to knock on the door real loud, wake him up, and even when he says no, you need to not take no for an answer, but you need to keep bugging him, keep beseeching him, keep praying with more and more zeal, more and more fire, until you finally can get him to get up and do something. Is that the picture of God that we find in the Bible? Well, let me look at this a little bit. The parable itself actually doesn't say that the friend keeps bugging the guy in bed. It actually doesn't say that. Now, people bring that interpretation in because of verse 9. Verse 9 says, I tell you, ask, it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. And people read that as a progression. That's not generally the way Hebrew thought works, actually. And if you read the Psalms, you'll find often that Hebrew poetry works by saying the same thing in different ways. So I, I think what Jesus is saying is the same thing in three ways. That's a pretty Hebraic way of expressing things. So if you look at the parable itself, it never says that the guy keeps knocking and keeps bugging and keeps bugging him. Except there is that word in verse 8. The ESV translates it impudence because of his impudence. Do you know what that word means? That means that you're just kind of bold, kind of cheeky, but it has sort of a negative connotation, this word, right? And then there's the word his. But here's the question. Who, who is the one who's impudent? Now, the ESV, well, let me just back up. The NIV, which is a translation I started reading when I became a Christian, um, says that because of the man's persistence, the guy will get up. So they say it's definitely the guy knocking. It's him who is persistent. But in the Greek, the word actually that's translated persistence, some translations say impudence, like the ESV, the word actually means shamelessness. Shamelessness. And it actually is a negative connotation word wherever it's used 
in the Bible. So it seems like a strange thing to attribute to God. Is God the guy in the bed? You say, well, you wouldn't call him shamelessness with a negative connotation. So what's going on? Well, let me just add another layer to this. The grammar in the Greek leans towards thinking that shamelessness is a description of the guy in bed, not the guy knocking at the door. So you've got a guy knocking on the door, and Jesus says because of the guy in bed's shamelessness, he'll get up, even though he doesn't want to get up. Now, this word has a negative connotation, so it would seem strange for Jesus to be, or sort of making God to be the one who has this negative word about him. So what's going on here? Well, I, I think the way to understand this is to understand, like I said, that the grammar points towards shamelessness being something that is said about the guy in bed. And here's where you need to understand a little bit about the Middle Eastern context of this story. Um, it always helps me when I'm reading these parables to think about my neighbors because I live next to Kurdish people from Iraq, from the Middle East. And in a lot of ways, their cultural traditions are still very similar to the way people in the biblical cultures understood things. And here's one thing you have to know about Middle Eastern people. They have very strong views and traditions about how neighbors relate to each other. Very strong. And one of the things that's very important for you to understand is if there is a neighbor or if there is a guest, you have to welcome the guest and you have to provide food for the guest. And if that's a need and you're asked to help with that need, you would never, ever, risk shaming yourself or your village by refusing to provide hospitality. It's interesting. I, I was talking to Wendy. I was like, I realized that we gave them some stuff recently, and we've lived next door to them for, what, eight years? Four more. Ten? Yeah. Long time. I would say it's only been very recently that if we gave a gift to our neighbors, we didn't soon have one of the kids coming over to our house with another gift to reciprocate. Always, if we gave them anything, they would give us something in return. Always, until very recently, which I guess means we're kind of like considered more like family, finally, after like 10 years, which is cool when we think about it. But I, I just sort of dawned on me, like, wait a sec, we gave them some stuff recently and they actually didn't reciprocate. But normally they would, and it was almost like clockwork because there are certain rules that govern relationships in a traditional culture that you just don't violate. And that's what's going on here, the, 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 and, and here's how you know the guy in bed gets up to avoid a sense of shame, which is something you never want to have in a Middle Eastern village. And the reason we know this is that he doesn't just give the guy the three loaves. What does he say? He gives him whatever he needs. So you see there that he is abiding by the cultural tradition as is expected. Now, as Jesus goes on, here's what you find in this parable. And this is why it's a tricky parable. This is the only parable 
where Jesus argues in a rabbinical fashion. The rabbis have this way of arguing, which isn't the way we normally argue, but they have a way of arguing sometimes, and you'll see this in the Apostle Paul as well. If this, then how much more this? That's not exactly the way we make arguments, but it's the way the rabbis argued, and it's the way Middle Eastern Semitic peoples argue sometimes. That's what this parable is doing, which Jesus says, if this guy, who even though he's evil, gets up, even this guy that doesn't want to get up, gets up because it's expected, even though he doesn't want to do it, if you, who are evil, give good gifts to your children, how much more will God give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You see what he's saying here? Jesus is saying, God is not like the guy in the bed. And God is not like the guy knocking on the door. God is actually none of the characters in the parable, which makes it actually a quite unusual parable. What Jesus is actually saying is, God is not like the guy in the bed. You don't have to bug him. You don't have to knock on the door over and over again to wake him up. No. As a matter of fact, that's the pagan idea of God. It's not the Judeo-Christian idea of God at all. I don't know if you remember this story of Elijah. Elijah was a prophet of God in the Old Testament. And he lived in a time when there was this other false religion, worship of Baal, who was a fertility god. And the worshipers of Baal had all these elaborate rituals. They would dance around like crazy. They would cut themselves to try to get Baal's attention. It was actually even more crass than that. They had this view that rain was Baal's sperm that impregnated Mother Earth and brought life. And so worship was like a porno flick. It really was to try to do everything you can to get Baal to impregnate the earth. And do you remember there's this story where they're on the top of the mountain because the mountains were considered to be closer to the gods so Baal could get a better view. And they're cutting themselves and they're dancing around and nothing's happening. And Elijah taunts them, and he says, yell louder. Maybe he's sleeping. And I think that most translations say, maybe he's on a journey. Though actually in the Hebrew, it literally says, maybe he's sitting on the toilet, and you need to get his attention. That's paganism. Though I would submit to you, sometimes Christian worship seems like we're trying to get God to notice us. There's a fabulous passage in the book of Isaiah. Because one of the things that the prophets of Baal did, the worshipers of Baal, is they would take their knife and they would carve into their hand the word Baal. So that that throbbing pain would be a reminder of who they served. And would be a demonstration for Baal of how committed they were. Do you know what Isaiah says about our God? He says that he carves our names into the palms of his hand. That rather than us having to wound ourselves to get his attention, he wounds himself so that he will never forget us. All through the Bible, the God of the Bible reveals himself as one who longs to bless his people. You don't have to get his attention. You don't have to bug him. You don't have to keep after him over and over and over again. If even... Fathers who are evil know how to give good gifts to their children. How much more will God give the Holy Spirit? This is an upside-down parable. 
God is not in the parable. God is so different than the guys in the parable. And yet even, even a guy who's in bed and doesn't want to get up, he'll get up when you knock. How much more will the God who loves you give you good things when you ask? Right? So what you see here is the motivation that Jesus is giving us to pray is not keep bugging, keep at it, and maybe you'll get what you want. In some ways, I, I, I feel like we would like it if it was that. Because sometimes we would rather know what to do rather than trust God by faith. We would rather be given something to do, something that seems measurable, something that seems to give us the impression that we're in control. But instead, Jesus says, no, the key to prayer is to understand the character of your father and what he's like. And he's so different than every other father you've ever known. The encouragement to ask, seek, and knock is in who God is. And now go back to the beginning of the chapter. And you find, isn't this what Jesus is teaching in this model prayer? How does it start? When you pray, say, Father. Hallowed be your name. You know what hallowed means? That means, may your name be set apart. May your name be holy, which literally means set apart, reverenced. The Lord's Prayer does not begin by trying to get God's attention. And that's pretty fascinating because most prayers in the ancient world, and we have lots of them, archaeologists have found tons of prayers written on little shards of poetry, or pottery, uh, on different papyri, all these sorts of things. And almost all ancient prayers outside of the Judeo-Christian tradition are basically trying to figure out what names of God you can use that will get their attention, and then a quick little request, like, I don't want to ask too much, but help me. So it's like, name, 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 help me. And you see that, actually, when the demons talk to Jesus. They try to figure out what his name is. They use his name to try to get power over him. That's the way ancient peoples believed the spiritual world worked. If you knew the true name of something, you had power over it. And then you could ask for something. And you had to get power. You had to get the attention of the gods somehow with sacrifices or whatever. But this prayer starts out very differently, doesn't it? This prayer starts out assuming a relationship, an intimate relationship. Father. One of the most amazing things about the Lord's Prayer is the thing that we miss because we take it for granted. It's that we get access, communion with God, the God of the universe who made all things, reveals himself as our Father who delights to give good gifts to his children. That's the reason that we should talk to him about matters of mutual concern. And isn't that what prayer is? It's talking to our Father about matters of mutual concern. And the key to talking to your Father is understanding that he delights to listen to you. Do we take that for granted? Do we remember what it cost Jesus so that we could have access to God, the Father, to have fellowship and communion with him? But see, when you understand the way the Lord's Prayer starts with this relationship, Father, and you remember what Jesus had to do on a cross so that we could be in a helpful, healthy, beautiful relationship with our Father, then we know that we should regularly pray that the gospel 
the good news of what Jesus did so that we can know God as our Father, we need to regularly pray that that would take stronger root in our hearts because without that, prayer is impossible. If prayer is motivated by the character of God, understanding that He's our Father and, and having a relationship with Him as our Father, and that's something that was done by the work of Jesus on the cross, then don't you understand that the beginning of prayer is to be reminded and to be soaking again in the work that Jesus did so that we could have access. Father, hallowed be your name, yet you're my Father. Hallowed be your name. You're holy. You're separated from us, and yet you're my Father. Calvin, John Calvin, who actually has an amazing chapter about prayer in his classic work, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, says that God has ordained prayer as a timely reminder of the gospel so that through it God may claim our hearts, assuage our cares, and cast out our fears and draw us gently to himself. And he argues, and I think he's exactly right, that faith in God, your Father, and His character has to give life and animate your prayers. Otherwise, you'll pray like this. And I love, he can be very sarcastic at times. He says, the people that don't understand this, this is how they pray. Oh, Lord, I am in doubt whether thou willest to hear me. But because I am pressed by anxiety, I flee to thee, that if I am worthy, thou mayst help me. Now, it sounds a little better because it's in Old English, right? But is that how you pray? Lord, I know I'm just a little bug and you could squish me, but I really, really, really need you. Won't you please bend your ear and maybe give me just a little crumb from your table? That's not how Christians pray. Christians pray, Father, you're my Father. And I got something I need to talk to you about. And it's important. And I know that you think it's important too. Because you care and you're committed to setting us free from all our sin and sorrow. And I can bring everything before you, and we can talk about it. What do you think God, sorry, what do you think people, if they heard you pray, would think you actually believe about the character of God? In other words, if somebody could hear you pray and try to determine from that what you think about God, and what you think about how he relates to you, what do you think they would think? It's a great old uh, preacher story about Alexander the Great. One of his um, generals came to him because his daughter was getting married and asked for an outrageous amount of money for the wedding. And Alexander smiled and said, I grant it to you. And the guy left. And one of the other generals came up and said, I can't believe you did that. Like, I would think that if somebody asked for that kind of preposterous amount, that you would have just cut off their head for their impudence. And Alexander said, no, you misunderstand. He honored me. Because in asking for such an outrageous amount, he showed that he believed that I am fabulously wealthy and amazingly kind. He honored me. What would people think you believe about God and what he's like from the way you pray? Oh, Lord, I know I have no right to ask you this, but please, pretty, pretty please, 
give me just this little, little thing, and I promise I won't ever ask you for anything else again. Christians should not pray like that. Christians pray to a father who loves them and delights to give good gifts to them. And that should affect our, our prayer, right? Whatever God gives us, he gets to define the gifts because he's our father. Now remember this. The character of God should always be the grid, should always be the glasses through which we interpret the way he acts. And I, and I think sometimes, I, I don't know, have you ever felt tricked by God? Where you asked for something, prayed for something, got something else? How are we to make sense of the way God answers prayer? And I think what Jesus is teaching here about the character of God as our good father is a really important thing. Now, I know it doesn't answer all the questions. And honestly, I don't think the Bible gives the kinds of answers to the problems of suffering and evil that lead us to basically say, okay, cool, I get that, I'm fine then. I'm going to go off and, and everything's fine. I don't think the Bible gives those kind of answers. I think the Bible gives the kind of answers that enable us to keep trusting him, even in the midst of the brokenness. Because the heart of the answer is Jesus himself, who didn't stay up in heaven untouched by sorrow, but came and lived among us and died a torturous death that he didn't deserve. And so often when we're struggling with answers to prayer or what we think are not answers to prayer, I think a big thing that gets kind of lodged in our hearts is the suspicion that Jesus doesn't really care. And while I may not understand and you may not understand why God answers as he does, I know that if Jesus died on a cross, we can never say that he doesn't care. And Jesus is teaching here that God's character is key. William Cooper, great uh, Christian hymn writer and poet, put it this way, blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Now, those aren't just glib words that William Cooper wrote. William Cooper is a man who eventually went insane. And he had went insane once before and had come out of it. And when he wrote this hymn, it was when he felt his insanity coming upon himself again. He did not write those words lightly, but he is right. Blind unbelief. Blind unbelief does not bring the character of God revealed through Jesus on the cross to bear on the difficulties and the confusions of life. Now, I posted this quote on the uh, Facebook group. I want to read it to you because I think gospel-centered prayer changes the way we pray, and I think it's, it's important to hear this. Here's the way, um, it, 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 this, this is what Keller's getting at. We pray first, Father, hallowed be your name, and then we pray your kingdom come, and then we pray for daily bread. And praying your kingdom come changes the way we pray for daily bread. 
This is how Keller explains it. If we lose focus on the glory of God and the gospel as a solution to all our problems, then we devolve into a set of grocery list prayers made rather desperately. When we are done, we only feel more anxious than before. The presence of God is not sensed because God is really just being used. He's not being worshipped. Instead, we should always remember that the first thing we need is a new perspective on our needs and problems. We should always intertwine our petition with repentance over our unbelief and indifference to God's grace. On the one hand, we must pray into ourselves that the thing we are asking for is not our Savior or God or glory. But on the other hand, after we repent and refine our desire, we should pray into ourselves that God is our Father and wants to give us good things so we can ask in confidence. Also intertwined with our petition should be praise and marveling that we are able to approach God and be welcomed. This is gospel-centered prayer rather than anxious petitioning. Our desires are always idolatrous to some degree, and when we pray without dealing with that idolatry first, we find that our prayers only make us more anxious. Instead, we should always say, in effect, Lord, let me see your glory as I haven't seen it before. Let me be so ravished with your grace that worry and self-pity and anger and indifference melt away. Then when we turn to ask God for admission to grad school or healing of an illness, those issues will be put in proper perspective. We will say, Lord, I ask for this because I think it will glorify you. So help me get it or support me without it. If the overall focus of the prayer is on God's glory and the gospel... Our individual petitions will be made with great peace and confidence. Now, there's a lot there. It's worth pondering and thinking about. Last point. What does it mean to call on God, our Father, as Father? You know, Father is is actually not something that Jesus introduced. Israel is called God's Son at the first exodus, right? It's not something Jesus invented. But it actually connects to the messianic promise in 2 Samuel that God would one day send a son of David who would be the true son. So when we're praying to God as our Father, and Jesus is teaching us that we can call God the Father too, not just God is not just His Father, but it's our Father, then it's a term of intimacy but also of revolution. Because it means that the messianic king through whom the promises of the coming kingdom were given has come. And it's an expression of holy boldness. Uh, In the Anglican liturgy, they always introduce the Lord's Prayer with these words. And so with boldness, as our Savior is commanded, we come with boldness to say. There is something about praying God our Father that requires the boldness of faith because you don't deserve for God to be your Father, neither do I. But Jesus has revealed that God is our Father by grace. And so when we come and we say, Father, there even is built into that this holy boldness. And then finally, I want you to think about this. What does it mean for Jesus to call God his Father? I think one of the ways, if you've ever wanted to go through the Lord's Prayer and think maybe a different angle that will help deepen your appreciation of what Jesus is teaching. Think about what it meant for Jesus to pray, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. 
This lady I know, Rosemary Miller, says, whenever you pray your kingdom come, you're really asking God to dismantle your kingdom. I don't know if you know that or not. <laughs> Maybe you won't want to pray that prayer so glibly anymore. But what did it mean for Jesus to pray, Father, your kingdom come, not mine. Your will be done, not mine. It went going to a cross. And the thought of going to that cross was so dreadful to him that his sweat poured out like great drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. But still, he goes. In other words, what it meant for Jesus to call on God his Father meant for him to take the role of son. And in the ancient world, that meant the role of apprentice. That what my father does, what I see my father do, I want to do as well. And regularly in John's Gospel, you see Jesus taking that role, don't you? And that means that when we say our Father, we are, we are both coming in this, this claim of intimacy because of what Jesus has done on the cross, but we also should be sobered because it means that we've signed up to be about his kingdom and his purposes. N.T. Wright says it this way, and I'll close with this. Saying our Father isn't just the boldness the sheer cheek of walking into the presence of the living and almighty God and saying, hi, Dad. It is the boldness, the sheer total risk of saying quietly, please, may I too be considered an apprentice son or daughter. It means signing on for the kingdom of God. When we call God Father, we are called to step out as apprentice children into a world of pain and darkness. We will find that darkness all around us. It will terrify us precisely because it will remind us of the darkness inside ourselves. The temptation then is to switch off the news, to shut out the pain of the world, to create a painless world for ourselves. A good deal of our contemporary culture is designed to do exactly that. No wonder people find it hard to pray. But if we take the risk of calling him Father, then we are called to be the people through whom the pain of the world is held in the healing light of the love of God. And then we discover that we want to pray and we need to pray. There are two things that animate prayer. Knowing the things that break God's heart and knowing the character of God our Father who invites us to speak to him about matters of mutual concern. And isn't it better to talk things out with someone who loves you and wants your best? It always makes things better, doesn't it? Let's pray together.